0: Welcome to The Last Call with Two Boozy Hacks. I'm John Sweeney in London and in New York, Mike Weiss. And today with us, the two screenwriters of the Salisbury Poisonings, Adam Patterson and Declan Walsh. Adam, what are you drinking?
1: I'm drinking a uh, lovely uh, Hardy's uh, Malbec.
2: Um, Declan. Declan. I am drinking um, an Irish pale ale, not because I'm a hipster, but because it's called Heaney's, and it's from Seamus Heaney, the poet's farm in Balahi, County Derry. So, therefore, I'm drinking an Irish beer.
3: (laughs) Um, Mike, what are you on? I'm on my usual uh, gin and soda, and it's a bit early here, so (laughs) bear with me. (laughs) I'm also quite hungover from Father's (laughs) Day, because I got treated well for a change in my household yesterday.
0: Um and I'm <laughs> slightly embarrassingly, I'm drinking rose with a frosé with added strawberries. And there's kind of extra alcohol in here as well. But it looks <laughs> frankly a bit looks a bit dodgy. Um but never mind that.
3: I have and, to say, and- John, you would you would absolutely be the ugliest one in sex in the city. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, how can I always put this? Fuck you. Um, anyway, so um, for a minute, uh, no longer than a minute, because otherwise it's too depressing. We have an argument about whose country is more fucked up: the United Kingdom or the United States? Mike.
3: Uh, let's see. So Donald Trump had a rally in Tulsa, which wasn't quite on the anniversary date of a famous uh, anti-black massacre in 1921, I believe. Um, he did it a few days afterwards you know, because he's decorous and well-meaning. But it was was probably the most incoherent he's ever been, uh, which is saying quite a lot. So I don't know if you saw, he gave a speech at West Point and then he sort of stumbled down the ramp. And then it was sort of trending on social media that either he's had a stroke or he's dying or some wasting disease. And so he spent much of the rally mocking people who thought something was off with him by doing a pantomime of his stumbling down the ramp. He, I think he did this like three or four times. Um, and that was the highlight of it. So I think, again, man, it's 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 not even close. I mean, you know, the, la- the only thing I've seen it from the UK this week was uh, Starmer at PMQ really sticking it to Boris. So it shows what the Labour Party has become now that it's got a proper man in the driver's seat again. It's a viable <laughs> opposition. Um, and he's a quite likable guy. I mean, I, I haven't, I've yet to be disappointed with what he's said or done. So I think you, I think America's more fucked and Britain is showing signs of life.
0: I, uh, I disagree um, because I think I'm going to win my bet for the, for the free listeners. They already know this, but I've bet 500 pounds on Joe Biden to win. I'm not going to win my 500 quid, Mike.
3: I would say today, this week, I would say you're you're sitting pretty, but it's still, what, five months to go. Uh, the economy is sort of swinging back into action. I'm in New York today. In fact, phase two of reopening has begun, so you can sit outdoors at restaurants, cafes, and bars. Um, there was an article in the New York Times, a lot of people were spared poverty, which is not to say that they're doing well. Uh, they're still sort of Barely making ends meet, but they were spared poverty because of the government bailout that was instituted. I mean, look, the economy will still be shit by November, and Trump will still be Trump. Uh, and every every poll that matters, including and especially in the swing states, shows Biden ahead. But what, what always worries me is he's not ahead enough. You know, it's it's five points, four points, so it's it's still a tiny margin. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I feel okay at the moment. As you know, uh, you know, my mood swings go from a state of equilibrium to utter <laughs> catastrophic nightmarishness very quickly. So who knows where we'll be next week.
0: A, but, but in a nutshell, I would say Britain's more fucked because we've got five more years of Boris Johnson's rather rubbish government, whereas in in the States it looks as though you're about to say, or rather this November you may well say, arrivederci to Mr Trump. Who knows? Anyway, never mind that. We're here today to talk to two um, actual, really rather good dramatists who um, dramatised the Salisbury poisonings we watched in British TV. It'll hit America. When's it, uh, chaps, when's it going to hit um, American screens?
2: In the fall, uh, with a capital F, uh, whatever um, whatever that means, September, October, um, I think. On AMT. So... The fall schedule,
0: as they call it. But um, so but you, so this is the story about the Scripals, the uh, attempt by the GRU to poison them to kill Old Man Scripple, who they see as a traitor, and in the end, they killed an entirely um, an entirely innocent Wiltshire woman called Dawn Sturgis, and she was the victim of this awful bung plot. Um, by the GRU to take revenge on one of its own in a, in the British Cathedral town, the English Cathedral town of Salisbury. What was it like? First of all, uh, Declan, what was it like digging into this story? So you'd recognise it because we just went about it exactly
2: as we would have a panorama. Um, you know, boots on the ground. You You read everything you can, watch everything you can, and then as quickly as you can, you get down there drop a list of everyone you want to meet um, and use official or unofficial channels to get to them. So, you know, we'd go and talk to the police or the council officially, but then there were other people who we just knocked doors. Um, You know, we've all done it a million times. You just wet Wednesday night, knock someone's door and say, Hey, I was wondering if you'd speak to me about this. Um, The difference with making a panorama, we had a lot more time. Mm. Like when I, when I joined uh, current affairs, television and like, say 2004 2005 I made my first panorama and you'd get quite a long time you remember to research stuff sometimes you'd have six months or longer and then that time that time kept kind of compressing and compressing until you find yourself sometimes making films within like a few weeks and so the difference with this was for the course of a year Adam and I were able to spend loads of time in Salisbury. Uh, there wasn't an awful lot of pressure on our shoulders. It just it took as long as it took. And so it's kind of a pleasure to do journalism in those circumstances because you can speak to someone and you can literally give them two or three weeks to mull it over, which we couldn't we could never do in journalism. you' you'd need an answer within a week, basically. Um, so for all these reasons, we had you know quite a lot of success. Uh, what do you reckon, Adam? No, I think you've covered a lot of it there. I mean,
1: I think that it, that's it. It's time. Time is the big thing. Also, the, our timing, like it had been, even though the city had been saturated by the world's media for months, it had been, you know, a, it's three or four months since Don's death. So the, the, the media buzz had died away a bit. And I think that allowed people to kind of pause, digest, consider, reflect, and then maybe be ready to speak again. Whereas when they're in that moment, it's continually compounding upon them and they, They don't know what's going on and their head's in a spin and it's very difficult to trust anyone. So I think it allowed us to, for example, approach the Sturgis family slowly, but it allowed that first meeting where we could say to them, listen, this is going to be a long journey. You can step away from it at any time, but this is what we're about. This is what we want to do. And if you think that that's the way you want to go, then let's keep talking. And as Dex says, then you could say to them, you know, take a few weeks. You call us, we won't call you. And um, and the agreement, the game with the BBC was from the start that if the real people didn't sign up, we wouldn't continue. Um, but we were commissioned to develop it before it was greenlit for production. So that took a little bit of pressure off us and off them at the same time. One of the things I noticed, um, I've, been, I've been naughty and, and I've watched it from the US using
3: a VPN workaround on the BBC website. How, dare, <laughs> how <laughs> dare you? Don't do that at home, boys and girls. Uh, wait for it to come out properly in America. But... Um, one of the things I, t- I told John this after watching the first episode, and I I, I can't imagine, uh, well, I'll, I'll ask it, I'll put it to your point blank, that, that you sort of prefigured the current state of global lockdown and panic over, you know, a pandemic. But a lot of the, the same tropes and the same sort of atmospherics are at play in this. I mean, you have a, this is obviously one city in the U.K., But because of uh, uh, an invisible enemy, as the president would say, um, this horribly lethal, toxic nerve agent, um, the entire city shuts down. And and there are similar kind of mechanisms in place as was for COVID. Right. Uh, And in a weird way, watching it today, you know, it it sort of seems like it anticipated the the way the world was going to go, even though, obviously, this was a, a targeted assassination attempt, not, you know, a virus that spread um have you did, you did you did you realize i mean at what point perhaps in post-production or before it aired did you kind of step back and say wait a minute like this is actually kind of very relevant um today given what what people are going through
0: uh, question, did you plant the bats in wuhan to make your film work? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's
2: really the question answer that question you, you want to ask isn't it we, we can't we can't uh we can't comment on that but um yeah, so it was probably so that so it was completely finished, more or less finished when COVID hit. Um, there were a couple of key things we had to film at the end of episode three, but basically it was finished. So there was no we didn't change any of it because of COVID. Um, you know, what was written is exactly what you see, mm. but the confluence of events is crazy. I mean, we, we we can't believe it and we couldn't believe it in March when mm. all of this started to unfold. So let me give you an example like back, uh, I kind of at the end of 2018, early 2019, Adam and I sat with uh, Tracy Daskovich, who's kind of one of the main heroes of the show, who's a public health director. And she she said to us, OK, this is what happens when you have a public health emergency. These are your options um, for a kind of a, a contagion or a contaminant. Uh, it's like track and trace, contact tracing. And she told us how that worked. Yeah, lockdown. Um, And then making, uh, and then treatment and PPE and and getting the health service ready to to deal with it. So I remember that we left that meeting on like a Tuesday afternoon looking at each other and literally said, we must be like two of the only people in the country who don't work in public health who understand this stuff. And then over a bizarre period of about six weeks back in late February and March, this whole lexicon just entered mm. the global consciousness. Mm. And we were like, we didn't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, no, actually, to be honest at the start, we thought it was a bad thing. We yeah, thought the BBC um, pushed the
1: show as well. Because
2: of, for the BBC for pushed the show. We, we all thought that it was, it, it was inappropriate mm. to put it on air at the time. Um, we thought that the, there was too many coincidences in terms of the, the kind of massive fear that people were feeling. So, yeah, um, and then as time went on and the kind of the the immediate terrible threat of COVID kind of, you know, the, as, as the kind of... The, it plateaued and then started to recede. We thought, well, actually, maybe there's a world here in which the two things, it's good that they're, they coincide because ultimately we're telling a story of, like, resilience and community and people overcoming stuff. Mm. And so my, my sense on COVID actually... Is that even though there's been a complete balls up and catastrophe uh, in some countries in terms of dealing with it, fundamentally on a local level, I think people have done an amazing job. and it showed it has showed the best of human nature in many many ways. And I think you know that's kind of what our what our series was always about. That terrible things can happen, but you know, but there are it, they can be overcome. Mm-hmm. And I would just add to that that
1: I think when it happened in Salisbury, of course, like the spy angle was the major media driver because it's so, the geopolitical ramifications are so vast and huge and it's such a massive story. And, and the local effort got a little bit of splash, but I think the difference then was if you were not from Salisbury, you were looking at, at them as the other. It was, it's something like, oh, that's, that's crazy, but I don't compute it. Whereas now everyone hmm. computes because it's happening to everyone. So like on yeah. the, from a yeah. selfish standpoint, that obviously is great for us because it's, it's this global resonance that just ties into to COVID, right? People actually understand like now, I think what heroism really is. I think our optics and heroism have shifted to like the people that should be heroes, like uh, the clap for carers in the UK, nurses on the front line. The first time we met Tracy Daskovitz, the director of public health at Wilshire, we were like, this woman is unbelievable. She's a hero. That's a hero. And now mm-hmm. I think everyone realizes that there's heroes all around them that they never would have seen before. So for those two reasons, I think the show partic- had particular
2: resonance, um, in the UK. But, but we did think we did think it was pretty ballsy, Adam. I mean, we were definitely rolling the dice to make a director of public health the hero of a show that could have been could have been a, a spy drama. I mean, it was it was definitely a risk. I, you know,
1: I think um, we did kind of Trojan horse the BBC a bit with that because. It was originally like a 90-minute commission for BBC Two. And uh, I think with that, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, do the ordinary heroes thing. And then, like, you know, not to blow our own horn, but we just came back with so much great testimony from these amazing people that it was bumped up to a two-parter. And then when we got the Bailey family, Nick Bailey, who was the uh, the policeman who almost died, when his family came on board, it was bumped up to a three-parter. And then after it was filmed, they pushed it to BBC One, But I think if it had been commissioned originally as a primetime BBC One spot, I think there would have been a lot more pressure upon us to inject kind of sensationalist narrative that would not have allowed this kind of the type of underwriting. And the way Declan and I like to write about the world, which is kind of a lot more underplayed. So I think we were quite lucky that we we kind of escaped the, uh, the hurdles that are often thrown down for a primetime commission. But yeah. you know, what's what's sort of
3: ironic about that is is one perhaps the most successful uh, TV minis- miniseries of the last couple of years has been Chernobyl, which opens after the accident, after the attack, right? And it's all about essentially first responders, people who sacrifice their own lives to kind of clean up a mess. Um, very similar to to your show. I mean, you see the Skripals on the bench, sort of keeled over, and I don't know, asphyxiating whatever whatever the Term is, and then it's just about everybody else in Salisbury who comes in to sort of contain the crisis, right? So you're not you're not shadowing the two GRU operatives from the plane, and that would be very, I think, kind of formulaic, you know. That would be your your classic spy thriller. It's much more compelling to see because you know, sitting here in America, when this all happened, you know, I'd never been to Salisbury, even though I lived in the UK for two and a half years. I was in London. But it's it seemed very kind of abstract to me. You know, what's actually taking place in the city? What's the human effort going into trying to stop this lethal WMD, essentially? I mean, this was a, a terrorist attack, right, using a, a chemical uh, weapon. Um, and you really kind of bring that to life. You really show that this was way more of a kind of seismic effort than it seemed to be just by reading The Guardian or watching MSNB.
2: Yeah. I mean, the... There, there have been a couple of uh, reviews in in England saying, oh, you know, I don't understand why they didn't write a spy story, and I feel like writing to the reviewer and saying, I don't understand why you don't write a restaurant column. you know it's like <laughs> it, it's like that that's not what we're trying to do here. Yeah, and it never was because the fundamental thing, right? The journalistic instinct is is that you you write what you can stand over. Like Adam and I were very uncomfortable from the beginning in trying to write a scene that we couldn't, you know, double
0: or treble source. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how did they, how did they like, how did the people from British counterintelligence like your accents? Yeah.
1: Infiltrate the
0: production. When they, when, when they heard
1: Admin, <laughs> they were okay. When they heard the name Declan lawn, they kind of got a wee bit edgy. It could work out. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
0: I would say oh, before uh, they uh, let uh,
2: us uh, in the building, there was uh, some
0: uh, deep, People ought to know uh, that Adam Patterson is a very Protestant (laughs) Northern Irish name. And. um,
3: I know you're from from Kentucky, sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and, and Declan Lorna is a pretty Catholic um, name and uh, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Um, So it's it's love across the barricades, John. (laughs) (laughs) One, one, uh, no, I I read one of the reviews, it's by a, a, a plonker called Hugo Rifkind who said, why, why aren't there spy stories? And and as it happens, just the other day, I did a um, a story for Byline Times about a dodgy PR man called Paul Blanchard, who owes a lot of people money and seems to be anti-Semitic and unpleasant. And um, Hugo Rifkin and I got into a spat on Twitter because this guy's interviewed a ton of, Paul Blanchard's interviewed a ton of journalists, including me and Hugo Rifkin. And I feel there's something wrong about this podcast series he's done because Basically, I think he's using it for other means and it makes me uncomfortable. And Hugo Rifkind and I had an argument. His argument was that he couldn't possibly, he didn't want to give uh, copy approval, so therefore he couldn't ask um, for his name to be taken out of the podcast series. And I thought, no, you can say there's something wrong here. I I, uh, take my name away from your series, which is not to say I want copy approval. So Hugo Rifkind and I, I think he's a plonker. He actually had a go at me on Twitter and said, have you been drinking? And and I was absolutely, it was during the day, I was stone cold sober. So when he wrote this poxy review of um, of your film, I just thought, well, fuck you, Hugo Rifkin. And you
3: like <laughs> <laughs> the fact that, that Hugo Rifkin is the son of Malcolm Rifkin, who is the Conservative Party MP. I think he sat on the, what is it, the Foreign and Security...
0: The Intelligence Committee.
3: The Intelligence Committee. And he was he held that post, by the way, to bring it back to Russian espionage and influence operations. He held that post whilst he was acting as, I think, an advisory board member of Conservative Friends of Russia, which was this front organization founded by a guy who was since PNG'd prior to Skripal, a guy called Sergei Nalobin, Who was an SVR officer working out of the embassy in London? The political director was his diplomatic cover. Anyway, this was one of the first front organizations created by Russia in Europe to push their agenda using right wing populist politicians. And Luke Harding and I wrote about these guys, and just before Nalobin got PNG'd, and I was later told uh, the, the articles that we wrote gave Malcolm Rifkin his easy out to abandon this whole thing. Because what is a Tory MP doing, essentially working for a Russian front organization in the UK?
0: Um, is it so, possible that son Hugo is, is actually working for the Kremlin? That's why he wrote the uh, wrote a full review? Or, suggestion? you know,
3: he's just, he, he, he was <laughs> bouncing on daddy's knee, hearing about spy yarns growing up, and that's what he wants. Anyway, this is, this is kind of a weird tangent about Hugo.
0: I was <laughs> <laughs> the but G uh, All concerned that I any wrongdoing and obviously uh, we're joking um, and Hugo's entirely entitled to his own opinions. But I thought it was very ballsy of you not to do the spy route. Um, And uh, Mike, I don't know if you know that Mike's writing a book about the GRU, so he was very angry because he was hoping to pinch your homework.
3: (laughs) No, actually, um, go on. Sorry, we've talked
2: about it. How's how, how's the book going, Mike?
3: It's going okay. I mean, I've I've got an extension because of COVID. Um, I told my publisher I have a five year old daughter home every day, all day, uh, which didn't really afford much opportunity to folks sit down and focus. But no, I was going to say, you know, the the cell, as it were, or the network of operatives. Uh, of which uh, Mishkin and uh, Chepiga the two guys who were responsible for poisoning Sergey and Yulia um they have all been identified by a chap at Bellingcat called Christo Groziev. yeah Christo is the one who who outed these two as well and there's a general called Sergeyev who I, I'm sure you, you you came across this in your yeah. research it, yeah. and it came to, to light later that Sergeyev had gone to mm-hmm. London and I think he, uh, he, he he sort of stayed at a hotel in Paddington and was essentially the director of the operation or the administrator, whatever the, the term of art is. While well, these two went, took the train to Salisbury, did their wet work and then came back. So it was actually three guys from the GRU who were in the UK at the time of this attempted at assassination, which is interesting. Uh, and anyway, uh, so Gaev has run operations all over Europe, including um, the attempted poisoning uh, and murder of this Bulgarian arms dealer, um, Gebrev, who I went to Sofia for my book to interview. And he survived. That wasn't Novichok, though. That was some kind of organophosphate. And the only reason he survived, he told me, is being connected to the Bulgarian defense establishment and arms uh, industry, he had very good uh, contacts with the Bulgarian military Doctors who are apparently second to none in the world. Um, Bulgaria having a long, sort of sordid history of <laughs> conducting assassinations, <laughs> including of the former pope. Anyway, so he they saved wow. his life because uh, they were able to identify that this was some kind of toxic substance. So anyway, these guys are. The chapter in my book is called "The Poisoner's Handbook," yeah. and it's all about this. This, yeah, murder incorporated, essentially.
2: Mm-hmm it's It's fascinating, you know um like w- w- sometimes I look back and wonder, you know sometimes we're not I'm not the best analyst of my own motives, and I, I wonder, okay, well we really shied away from that spy story from day one. There was something instinctively that we really wanted to tell the stories of the victims and the ordinary responders, and I wonder if it wasn't because we grew up in Northern Ireland a place where spooks and double agents cast a very very long shadow right and i I spent a lot of my journalistic career meeting people who felt that their loved ones had been killed as a result of state collusion and who were pointing fingers at agents and double agents and stuff that you could never really get to the bottom of and and the stories of all of those victims I just felt we're never really told, right? Is that, you know, because so, the world of espionage casts f- like a really long shadow, but the people that cast a shadow on, you, you never really hear their stories. You know, you, you never really hear. And, and so that is why I, I think there was something deep-seated in both Adam and I that was like, you know what? Screw the spooks. Like, mm. screw them. Let, let's, let's tell the story of the consequences of this spooks, it's like uh, Chris Kerry, the executive producer, actually had quite a good metaphor for mm-hmm. it. He was like, "You know, you know, when James Bond, when Bond drives through the market square and knocks over all of the market stalls and all of the apples go everywhere, this is about the people who have to pick up the apples." Yeah, the market and stall guy who's like,
1: shaking his fist.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
3: But it's much more powerful for that for that very fact. I mean, you know, people hear, "Oh, Putin tried to." whack one of the, you know, the the defectors or traitors to the GRU. And, you know, that that's kind of fun and compelling from an espionage point of view. But when you find out, no, actually, there was a cop who nearly died. Yeah. His family was devastated. Then there was this poor woman who also was treated a bit unfairly in the press, as you guys make plain in your Sunday Times piece and also in the show, um, who haphazardly came across a bottle of perfume and and lost her life. And then, of course, just the amount of money that had to be poured into this crisis containment uh, regimen, you know, the businesses that had to suffer, again, going back to sort of the COVID experience, right? How much money they lost in revenue, um, storefronts, uh, restaurants, cafes, etc. The human toll is what matters the most. And it's, it's much more of a damning indictment of the Russian government to portray what you guys have portrayed rather than to make it a sort of born identity
2: yeah, yarn. and you know, th- th- that was the other thing about episode three, it, like in episode three, Mike hasn't seen the whole it tone, the
1: the...
2: yeah, the... I know, but like <laughs> when you come to watch it, episode three, Mike, it's like the whole tone shifts, it stops, it stops being a kind of contagion thriller and it starts being a family mm-hmm. drama. And, yeah. and, and one of the reviewers said like astutely, it's like an extended mm-hmm. epilogue. It's like pretty much the, about, you know, 15 or 20 minutes in, most of the action is over. It's all mm-hmm. about consequences. Which again right. which again it's just a deep dive into 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 grief basically which
0: again was a, a little bit of um a little bit of a risk for us
3: yeah
0: it's beautifully done um there was there were three moments there's a moment when um has got a mate who's um a, a british guy a former submariner, ross, I think, yeah, Ross somebody ross yeah and he's a really He's salt of the earth. Um, you just know he is. I, I haven't met him, but um, he says, and there's only one line that, 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 that Sergei Skripal said: "Putin's out to get me." Yeah, and and, and actually, and that's it's, and and that's the, I think the only discussion um, of Putin in the whole show. Mm. But um, it, it really, really registered for me. Um, the second thing I thought, which was incredibly powerful was the moment when the um the public health officer whose name having drunk most of my uh rose i don't know what's her name tracy Tracy. her name's
2: tracy Tracy daskovich but i won't even
0: ask you to say
2: daskovich at this
0: point daskovich oh well done okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) the hugo rifkin is not always right um but the moment she looks online she's told at two o'clock in the morning this is novichok And then she goes online and then she looks up uh, nerve agents, Russian nerve agents in Syria. And it's her face looking um, at the Internet of of what's happened in Syria. And again, it's like three seconds long. Uh, And I've done that story um, for Newsnight close up, watched hours of this awful Mm. stuff. And I thought it was incredibly powerful and great journalism told in a drama and and, and, and then, you know, scene changes and then you're on to the next uh, mm. part of the story. But I thought it was fantastic because of that. And then the third thing, um, spoiler alert, there's a moment in the um, in the third episode when old man, um, Dawn's mm, dad... Um, Picks essentially goes to the boyfriend who gave the present of the, of the perfume without realizing um, that actually without, how could anyone possibly know that this was the thing that would kill her? And it did. And he gets, um, he gets this man and he picks him up and takes him to the front of the church. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredible moment of human decency. And you know, He's um, from before, you know. He's angry with his daughter because of the choices she's made. But I also felt very angry, angry with myself, and also with the British press because essentially the story about Dawn was that she was some kind of junkie and that she was there was nothing to be lost, and that clearly was not true. And the way you dramatised it, you told an essential truth. She was, they were yeah. good people. I she think was John, like, I, I'm going
1: to jump on that and just say, like, the. um the recalibration of the memory of Don Sturgis is the thing we're most proud of, uh, because here is yes. a woman who had problems like many others, but was identified and labelled with problems she didn't actually have. She was labelled as a homeless uh, drug addict, and she had meant she was neither. She had mental health, some mental health issues. She had uh, problems with alcohol, <clears throat> like a lot of us on the Zoom call do. Um, <laughs> but. Um, she, uh, but when we met the Sturgis family, this was their reason for talking to us. They said, you know, it's not true. Dawn wasn't perfect. She wasn't an angel, but she was loved and she did love. And mm. our driving force in this drama, the one thing we had to get right was who Don was. And, you know, at the end, when, you know, the final, you know, because we obviously consulted with them through scripting. It's a very different thing for them then to, to again, see, uh, to meet the actress who's going to play them, Maiana Bering, and then it's, it's different again to see the episodes after they've been filmed, um, to see Dawn being portrayed in her some of the darkest moments of her life when she dies. So those were all big hurdles and the family family got over them all and at the end said that they were so glad they went on that journey with us. And I think if you can do that after exposing the story to millions
2: of people, then you've done something right. Yeah, I mean, 100%, <laughs> the most important reviews were the real people who were in it and what what they thought of it but especially the Sturgis family because it was such an act of massive trust to let us try and paint a portrait of their daughter who apparently was really bubbly and kind and optimistic and a great friend and a great mom and daughter and like you know yeah as Adam says like by far the biggest accomplishment of this series for us personally by far is the fact that we we kind of redeemed who she was, um, rescued her from that caricature.
3: Mm. And I think for a lot of people, um, particularly outside of the UK, who don't even realize that somebody was killed yeah. uh, by Novachuk, you know, that portrayal is going to stand the test of time, and that will eclipse any kind of catch penny Daily Mail treatment she may have mm. got, you know, in the immediate aftermath of it all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, very, I haven't seen episode three, but I've seen,
1: yeah, the, you know, how her character is, teased is very so far. much uh, their family's yeah. journey. Um, so you'll see a lot yeah. more of
2: that. But the, 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 other, the other interesting thing about factual drama born out of journalism is that all of the things people like most really happened. You know, like, you, John, you were saying there about that really touching moment where Stan Sturgis goes to the back of the church and, and brings Charlie up the front to be with the chief mourners. You know that's all true. Um, just, just all, all of the moments that that really, as a writer, you couldn't make up. You don't have the imagination to make up. The, all the moments just that are that are real are the moments that, that people text you about and email you about.
0: Mm. That's um, yes. It, it honestly, it was. I just felt cross with myself because I'd read the kind of Daily Mail spoon feed this this woman's. Um, a junkie, da 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 da, and you kind of there's a part of me that I that, that wrote her off, and then suddenly, as as the drama develops, you understand that's not true. Now the, the other thing is, broadening out a little bit, I was thinking about the moment I heard the moment when Jeremy Corbyn started asking questions of the British government's. Um, official narrative of what happened. And this, remember, was under Mm -hmm. Theresa May, who, despite her many, many faults, um, there was a fantastic bit in John Bolton's book where apparently it's quite obvious that that Trump didn't like Theresa May and Theresa May didn't like Trump. And I I read that bit and I went, oh, good on you, (laughs) Theresa May. But, But it was absolutely clear to me that this was a Novichok nerve agent attack by the GRU, on one of the, somebody they think's a traitor. That's how they roll. And it's the kind of completely psychopathic, sociopathic nonsense the GRU do, empowered by Vladimir Putin, because he's one of them. He's a spy. He's a secret policeman. He likes this stuff. And, and the idea that Corbyn, as leader of the opposition gave greater benefit of the doubt, and he did in the moment when, uh, when it first came out that it was Novichok, he gave the benefit of the doubt to yeah. the Russians over, uh, um, over the uh, the British government's version of events. And uh, I've been to Portland down years ago, and I've met these guys, and they're clever chemists and clever um, biochemists or whatever, but the idea that they would collaborate in some wild lie about this stuff, I found shocking. Yeah. And part of, and I think it's it's a big moment in in our politics because Corbyn, obviously influenced by Seamus Mill, who once hosted a Valda discussion um, with um, with Vladimir Putin, got it entirely mm. wrong, and and that's something the British government, the British people hated. And what's happened? Your film is what the viewing numbers are tr- fantastic, aren't they? What are the numbers? It was like seven
2: point two million on the first night. And then wow. six point two the the next two nights because obviously when it, it, it all dropped on iPlayer on the first night so any anyone could watch it um and so we were yes. really amazed actually, that it that held up for well, the next two nights.
1: And when's this um when's this podcast going out because we could tell you something else if it's after Wednesday. Uh, I mean, we can put it up today, or we can wait. If, if we, we
0: can, can... wait, uh, show something else. It's
1: not. It's not that big a detail. Um, oh, well, just, just to consolidate, the consolidated figures are ten point three million for Monday night, including night player. Wow.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: So like massive. Uh,
0: so by uh, the way, this is impressive because it's double uh, my five million I got for you know Scientology. What?
2: You know what? You I, <laughs> I, I absolutely knew you would bring that up in this podcast. I knew it. <laughs> I, I swear! I swear to you.
3: Number, 10 million more than who than, will than be listening to this podcast. So. This afternoon,
2: I was out for a walk, and I thought Sweeney is going to mention his 5 million for Scientology. It's going to happen, and it did. It did happen.
3: I think <laughs> we should, we could actually turn this podcast – it's already a, a, a boozy affair to begin with, but we could do a drinking game whenever John mentions Seamus yeah. Tommy Robinson, Scientology <laughs> – or Vladimir Putin.
0: And I haven't. <laughs> yeah. by the way, I haven't mentioned North Korea. Also five million. Um, but that's uh, that's been good of me. So yeah. So I felt that there was the viewing numbers and this sense of um, of this sense of people seeing the heroism in ordinary people, and that kind of is also reflected in um, in how. Um, how the um, COVID's been for so so many many people around the world in Britain uh, too as well. It was um, uh, it was weird and very very powerful. Anyway, what are you doing next? The Secret Life of Hugo. Um, we're, we're thinking of doing the Secret Life of John Sweeney,
2: but it, we're not. So we can get a we're not <laughs> sure we can get an R rating for it.
3: You'll have to charge yeah, yeah, that yeah, one big time. Yeah, yeah. Serious
2: Um, So let me ask you this,
3: though, Um, you know, even though you didn't really focus on the the, the GRU side of things, you know, from my book, and and I've talked to dozens of past and present intelligence officers all across Europe. And I said, look, why why go to this trouble to off a guy who was in a Russian prison for, what, six years or more because he had been caught? He was a defector in place. They caught him in Moscow. And then he was traded as part of the spy swap with the um, SVR officers who were caught as part of Operation Ghost Stories, that the famous FBI busted up hearing of Russian spies, including Anna Chapman. So, why, years later, wage this attempt on on a guy you could have easily killed in prison? Um, And I never got really a coherent or satisfactory answer. But I was told, in a way, it's not really about Skripal. It's about deterrent (laughs) capability. In other words, you know, and because I said, you know, they they failed. Not only did they not kill him, but their guys got caught on candid camera and their their identities were outed and all the rest of it. And then all these expulsions. Yeah, no, 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 it doesn't matter. You see, the GRU in particular is brilliant at turning tactical defeat into strategic victory. So they go after this guy who, as you say, had been in Russian custody, could have been easily whacked on Russian soil, any number of times over the course of almost a decade. But then he is released back into the West. He's domiciled in a sleepy cathedral city under his own name, because he's considered to be so untouchable or so kind of past his prime, nobody's going to want to screw with him. And then not only do they try to kill him, but they use a WMD to do it. So if you're sitting in the aquarium, or if you're sitting in the Lubyanka, and you're thinking about going to spy for the Brits or the Americans, or even just mm-hmm. defecting and quitting the the life, this is what the future that awaits you, right? So in a way, Putin won. This was hugely successful.
1: I, yeah, I think that's true. Um, and even in popular culture, uh, there's a really brilliant uh, French, French spy so, show called The Bureau. Yeah, I've watched that. That's great. By Eric Rochant,
2: it also just it's mm-hmm. it, it's just sowing pure chaos, isn't it? It's like you know that I did a lot of reading about that kind of doctrine of reflexive control of, of just of just doing some crazy stuff and uh, trying to predict the outcome uh, and, and causing mm-hmm. fear and uncertainty and confusion. I mean, it it just seems to me it it does seem completely bonkers. It seems completely bonkers that that it happened, although. Um, And 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 therefore, you can see how it it feeds into conspiracy theories, can't you? I mean, you can see that it's almost it's almost designed to be so outlandish and outrageous Mm. that it feeds so many conspiracy theories about what really happened. But like we Mm. we looked into this for a year, Um, 80 percent of our more, Mm. 90 percent of our research never made it on screen. We met so many people. You know, we did research the spy angle. Obviously, of course, we did. Um, we just didn't put it on screen because um, we kind of had to be sure that we weren't going down, we weren't being led up the garden path. You know, that there wasn't.
0: Yeah, I, I,
1: at one stage we did have um, uh, the regional counterterrorism command leader, like as a, a real character, mm. a recurring character, mm. and you know, we that was in the first uh, first script. Um, when it was a two-parter. Um, but it, it felt, especially when the Bailey, when Nick Bailey's family came on board and we started integrating their story, that that was a story that really was just pulling us out of this <clears throat> story of ordinary heroism. And it was a different story. And and again, we all just looked at ourselves and said, well, that's the story we said we weren't going to get into. Mm. So let's just stay away from right. it. But it was hard because she was a great character and there were some brilliant moments that we were then we lost, but that's just the nature of the beast.
0: Was that, was that the... Um, um there was a British Asian lady at one point. They said a uh, coffee, and she said, um, uh, "Black, no sugar, or dark." It, yeah. it was, um, and and she was kind of a bit snotty. No, there was There was, that there was another. There was another
2: more senior character.
0: We ne- never part. made
2: it into the final.
0: I I was. Um, did you meet? Did you go to the hotel in um, in East London where the, um, the two did, guys? We didn't actually.
2: To? We didn't the um,
3: where well, they had a. A late night romp with prostitutes. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, so the next question is: Did you meet the prostitute? <laughs> so, um, I mean, it, it's kind of extraordinary just how. So. Okay, this is this is every uh, BBC Panorama. The best bit of it was based in Northern Ireland in Belfast, and and I've just got a terrible flashback. Of the, 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 you know, schmucks like me would come from London thinking we knew things and then we'd be slowly reduced to an alcoholic mess in various bars in Belfast. Well, uh, people like Adam and Declan would take the piss out of me and also explain reality in a way that they didn't quite understand it. And this anecdote that they've just uh, skimmed through. Is giving me a flashback of what it's like to be in a pub near the BBC office in Belfast. Well,
2: I don't know if I should, uh, if that's a compliment or not, but I'm going to take it as
0: one. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: no, I miss it.
2: Not long
3: after they tried to kill Skripal, they sent a cyber operative team to the Hague. Uh, to I think it was was it the Hilton or the Radisson? Anyway, it's a hotel which is right next to the headquarters of the OPCW. And this is what they called a, um, a close access hacking job. So they actually had boots on the ground to do this. And out of the boot of the car, there was all this gear that they... And anyway, um, one of the, uh, the Dutch counterintelligence officers that I, I spoke to about this, you know, obviously these guys had been tracked the minute they landed in Amsterdam, took the hour car journey to The Hague. They were met at the airport by a guy from the embassy, which is a big no-no when it comes to clandestine operations. You never send a diplomat from the embassy. I said, and then you guys swooped in. So they obviously got close to penetrating the OPCW. He's like, well, I can't talk about that. I said, but, you know, they're just so stupid, right? He's like, yeah, you don't even realize. It was like four or five guys, and they had about nine different mobile phones amongst them. And the minute we swarmed in and, and nabbed them, one of the guys took one phone and threw it to the ground trying to, to <laughs> smash it. Not only did he not smash it, the, the the Dutch guy said, he told us which vote is the most important one. And on it, of course, was stuff um, which would have got this guy into hot water back in Moscow. So probably cavorting with prostitutes or pornography or something. That I said, so time and time again, investigating the GRU, as distinct mm. from the FSB or the SVR, it's like the Keystone Cops. They act like morons. They have no regard for the rules of <laughs> clandestinity. The tradecraft is awful. Again, the same comment. Yeah, but you don't understand. These guys, their picture was taken all over the, the Netherlands. They can't travel anywhere in Europe anymore. But I guarantee you they went back to Moscow conquering heroes because they came this close. And they showed an EU uh, country that we can penetrate. We can, we can send our guys anywhere and we can do anything. We don't even try to hide it? We're not even trying to hide it, no. We almost like they want to get caught because that just increases the, the, the sense of dread and menace. Uh, the, this the thing, this
2: have, is the question raised by the famous Russian TV interview, where the two, the two men admit to being the men who were in Salisbury and, you know, in a kind of hilariously, uh, uh, you know, hilariously kind of ostentatious way, say that they were there to visit the, the Cathedral Spire. Um, and you just look at that and you think, you know, why why would you do that? Why, Why yeah. would you... Why would you? I mean, I, I still ask that question. Why would you be so ostentatious about 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 what you've done there?
3: So my my
2: thesis is that
3: once they were burnt, they were then repurposed as essentially trolls, <laughs> right? Go on Telly, go on RT, which is Kremlin media. Uh, do this interview, claim that you were homoerotic, yeah. if not openly homosexual sports nutritionists going on holiday together and not only describing cathedral city in the most kind of project, but literally read from the wikipedia page for salisbury where you give the exact number of meters of the fucking fire i mean it's like the whole thing this is just designed to take the piss right to show the west look we know we did it you know we did it but you can't prove it and not only that but now we're going to put out all this bollocks To, as you say, kind of create conspiracy theories, just so a little bit of skepticism and doubt that everybody's going to sort of cannibalize themselves coming up with alternative narratives, how this could have happened or how MI6 in collusion with the CIA did it and blah, 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 blah. And hey, I mean, if if even uh, Jeremy Corbyn is kind of trafficking in these these tropes and even I think Donald Trump at first was a little bit skeptical that this was the Russians, then you, you've succeeded, right? You've created an information operation on the back of an, of an attempted assassination.
0: Now the, the counter argument to that is, uh, I've, I've forgotten the guy's name, but it's something like Boromov or whatever, who was the head of the GRU. He met shortly after this operation goes South. He met with an unfortunate accident mm. and, um, and it was when I looked him up on. The, so this is the head of the GRU. Suddenly he died of a mystery illness. Some about four or five months after mm. Salisbury happened. And I think the other thing is, and this is in part down to Adam and Dex drama, that that this isn't a joke. What happened in Salisbury is not a joke. Is not something the British people like at all. They get it. Um, I think all of us feel sorry that we were we didn't get the story of what happened of who Dawn Sturgis was right, and it's great the drama has properly corrected that story, so that uh, the family can have some kind of closure on it. But also, I think that Boris Johnson's government is in trouble. The longer they they don't issue the Russia report, mm. and so so weirdly. You're right, Mike. Yes, the Russians won. The signal has gone out to Russian wannabe defectors. Don't do it because you want to get killed at the same time. Certainly it's true of the British public and I think also um, the American public, if they get to watch this, they will see there is something dark and sinister and wrong about the power, the master of the Kremlin, how the GRU operates. And, and and I felt, I did feel a, a, a real kind of yes moment when there's Tracy looking at what Syrian, poor ordinary Syrians have had to put up with nerve gas in Syria, and then suddenly it's dropping in Salisbury. So I think down the track, this won't be forgotten. And, and and that Corbyn suffered, I think, electorally for his mistake in giving the Russians mm. a benefit of the doubt. So, so yes, you're both right, and I think with time um, there is there is there will be a reckoning for this. And I also, and I'm looking at the the poll numbers at the moment. I wonder whether Putin will get his his vote. Mm. I mean, he keeps on staying in power, and staying in power, and staying in power. There will come a moment. When, when suddenly it doesn't work well, anymore, it, um, it, it, and that's possible. He might not win his his new see, constitutional. here's, here's the thing:
2: like I, you know, like sometimes I'm uncomfortable speculating because I just like talking about stuff that I definitely know about. But I think what you can say about the series that we wrote is that it's a series written by two blokes who were exhausted by spookery, you know, who were investigative journalists out of North. For a long time, and who just kind of had our fill with the long shadow cast by espionage and agents, and the the horrific consequences that that world um, can have for ordinary people, because it's not it's not always discreet and self contained. It can spill over, and and mm. it can cause the most horrific grief for ordinary people. And so that that was the kind of the 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 central place that this came from where like after 15 or 16 years of just living in a place where that is still dealing with the terrible consequences of, of, of spooks and agents having free reign. We were just like, you know what, let's, let's just tell the stories of real people.
1: Yeah. And I think Hmm. also like, you know, especially kind of post Brexit Britain where it feels very disparate and broken and disenfranchised, it felt the right time to look look at the local people and listen to them for once, mm-hmm. rather than, as we always do, projecting governance upon them, you know. And that's that's yeah. why the local story, I think, spoke so much to us and why, why it resonates so much now with everyone else.
0: Somebody's um, having a fun time.
1: I thought <laughs> <neighbor, my> <laughs> we all were. My in the garden and my <laughs>
0: love I can hear. Uh,
1: I live, I live in a. Fr- uh, anyway, no, I can hear smart, some uh,
0: female joy around the corner somewhere. <laughs> but uh, but there we go. That's um, uh, that came out wrong. <laughs> it's, too often does time, it's too often done, T. It's too often done. So so yes. So anyway, am I wrong? Do you think there'll be a, ro- a reckoning over Russia? Do you think? Um, you would have thought about this a bit. Do you think Putin's Putin's running out of road. Do you think Trump's running out of road? Do you think Boris is in trouble over not um, publishing the Russia report? I mean
2: the the honest answer is I don't know or I think something different about it. About about it on every on day. It's like you know sometimes I think we've reached the high watermark of kind of you know reactionary liberalism and then that even the COVID crisis is going to change everything in the way we interact with each other, and then and then the next day I'm I'm more despondent. I, I mean, th- one sliver of hope that I see is the kind of Keir Starmer and his performances at PMQs. So I read a great tweet the other day that was a uh, for a Tory, Boris Johnson sure loves being publicly owned, which <laughs> so that was great um, because like every Wednesday, you know, Starmer is just. Is is just uh, going through. So I don't know. There are slivers of hope, um, but I that that's it. I, I oscillate wildly between thinking in five years' time we're going to be in a much better better place, and, and thinking that we're also potentially on the edge of a precipice.
0: Yes, I yep. feel
3: I don't think Vladimir Putin is running out of road. I mean, there was a I saw a journalist, a Moscow correspondent, post the other day that. Uh, kiosks had already begun selling new revised editions of the Russian constitution before the referendum has been held to revise the constitution. So it gives you a sense of, of where things are headed. Um, you know, look, he's proven Putin that is adept at navigating various crises from economic implosion in 2008 to sanctions starting in 2014 to now the COVID pandemic, which has hit Russia particularly hard, um, I think it would be naive to think that he's on his way out in the near future. It's not to say, of course, there's not long-term prospects for democratization in Russia. Um, as regards Trump, yeah, I mean, I, as I said at the at the outset, I think he's 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 doing the worst electorally um, that he ha- has ever done in the last four years, and there's this good chance he won't get reelected. But then again, I mean, you know, I go back and forth on this, as you know, John, all the time, has the damage that he has done to American institutions and the the trust and fidelity in public institutions, uh, and and private ones like the media, has that been irrevocable? Or will the sort of like a tanker in in mid-ocean sort of slowly wheeling around into another direction? I don't know. I don't know. There's there's causes to be optimistic, but there's also I think far more cause to be pessimistic. Which is not to say despondent,
2: but are you, you know. from Kentucky, Mike? Kentucky? No. No, <laughs> no, no I, I'm from I Queens, thought you, New I thought York. You
3: mentioned, <laughs> my kind my kind of, of Kentucky. I didn't go to Belfast in, like, 1978
2: than go to Kentucky. I Kentucky because, uh, no, I, I, the reason I was asking, I just, I thought you'd said that at the start of the podcast, and I was interested because I was there in 2015.
3: Oh, no, I was making a very uh, leaden joke oh, then, about your accent. That's all. I knew you are yeah, Irish, that but must just, be why I, for, for the, I, like, we have two listeners, and one of them's American. So I think it's black right, guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gosh, <laughs> I've gotten everything except Kentucky, so that, that's a new one by me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, uh, time's up gang um, you've been listening to the last call uh, with me uh, John Sweeney in London, my wife uh, in London and thanks to our special guests and wonderful dramatists who've told the story of how ordinary people's heroism combated um, something dreadful in Salisbury and that's Adam Patterson and Declan um, Lorne, thanks very much You've been listening to The Last Call. Cheers.